Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Fellman, and it's time for another foray into the world of aquariums from a slightly different perspective. Today, I call this little piece Project 18, the turning point. I don't know why I wrote it down like that, but it sounds cool. And it sounds a little bit like a spy thriller or like some kind of sci-fi action movie or whatever. But the reality is that it's simply a part of my tank identification nomenclature. Like every year since I started Tannin, I committed myself to do at least... I don't know, like one major aquarium project, one that really puts down a sort of a marker or tests some idea that I've had in my head, something that pushes the boundaries of what we do in the botanical method aquarium world. And despite the major descriptor, the tank doesn't have to be a big one. I've had some of my most epic tanks and greatest influential developments arise out of nanotanks, the urban agapo concept project 19 <laughs> the, sounds like a serial doesn't it the tucano tangle which was called project 20 the botanical brackish system project 17 and our java jungle project 21 all these dumb names but they came from tanks uh, of 25 us gallons or less and each one had an outsized impact on my philosophies moving forward each one represented a turning point in my personal botanical method aquarium journey one of the of all the tanks I've played with in the past, I don't know, like five years, I don't think one, none has had has any greater impact, impact. Boy, I'm tripping over myself today. I don't think anyone has had greater impact than the 50-gallon botanical method aquarium, which I called Project 18. This one helped move the mark, push me into a new direction or a new era of more thorough, more natural ecosystem creation. It was the first larger tank in which I really let nature take control, let her dictate the pace, the diversity, and the aesthetic. It started out quite simply, really, an almost stupid-looking stack of wood. I literally piled some wood in, but it wasn't just any wood. It was, at the time, I had red mangrove branches. Remember those when I was able to get those? It's a, a wood variety that imparts large amounts of tannins into the water. It's a very dirty kind of a wood with a lot of textured surface area, perfect for biofilm and fungal colonization, and that's what it did. The idea behind Project 18 was to literally accept what nature does to the materials that I used without any intervention on my part, nor a bent towards placing aesthetics first. Why? Well, for one thing, it was to put down my personal marker for natural in the aquarium hobby. The words used too often and often in weird ways, in my opinion. And some hobbyists emphasize how natural their aquarium is without really looking at the absurdity of how hard they're trying to fight off nature by forcing decidedly unnatural combinations of plants and other materials to exist in a highly staged, very precisely manicured world of aesthetics first philosophy. The result's a beautiful aquarium, don't get me wrong, one which has natural components for sure, but one which could hardly be considered anything but an artistic view of nature when placed into this context. I sometimes fear that this burgeoning interest in aquariums intending to replicate some aspects of nature at a contest level will result in a renewed interest in the same sort of diorama effect we've seen in planted aquarium contests. In other words, just focusing on the look or a look, which is cool, don't get me wrong, yet summarily overlooking the function, the reason why the damn habitat looks the way it does in the first place and how the fishes have adapted to it, and considering how we can utilize this for their husbandry, spawning, etc., is only a marginal improvement over where we've been stuck for a while now as the gold standard in freshwater aquariums. Look, some people are simply too close-minded to apply their skills to doing things in a truly more natural way. I get it. 
Some of these people just need to stare at a few underwater scenes for a while and just open their minds up to the possibilities. I'm not saying that this is the only way, the best way or whatever, but it is a way and it's a way that a lot of people can really enjoy the hobby. We all need to go further. I'm sure I'm being a bit just over the top. Okay, maybe quite a bit over the top. But the so-called nature aquarium movement seems to have, in my humble opinion, largely overlooked the real function of nature. So there is some precedent, unfortunately. A sanitized, highly stylized interpretation of a natural habitat is a start. I'll give them that. But it's just that, a start. The real exciting part, the truly progressive part, comes when you let nature do her thing and allow her to transform the aquarium as she's done in the wild for eons. So yes, it should go beyond merely creating the look of these symptoms to win a contest, in my opinion. Rather, we should also focus on the structural, functional aspects of these environments to create long-term benefits for the fishes that we keep in them. We should aim to incorporate things like biofilm detritus decomposition into our systems, just like nature does. We've been talking about that forever, haven't we? That's the real biotope aquarium, or nature aquarium in my book. That was the philosophy behind Project 18. Perhaps the most important thing botanical methods in general, aquarium method can do in general, is to facilitate the assembly of an ecology or even a food web within the system. To me, these are fascinating fundamental constructs which can truly have important influence on our aquariums. So what exactly is a food web? Let's just review it real quickly again. A food web is defined by aquatic ecologists as a series of trophic connections, i.e., feeding and nutritional resources in a given habitat among various species in an aquatic community. All food chains and webs have at least two or three of these trophic levels. Generally, there are a maximum of four trophic levels. Many consumers feed at more than one trophic level. So a trophic level in our case would go something like this. Leaf litter, bacterial fungal growth, crustaceans, fishes. In the wild aquatic habitats that we love so much, food webs are vital to the organisms which live in them. They're an absolute model for ecological interdependencies and processes which encompass the relationship between the terrestrial and aquatic environments. In many of the blackwater habitats that we're so obsessed with around here, like the Rio Negro, for example, studies by ecologists have determined that the main source of autotrophic sources, you know, food sources, are the agapo, those flooded forests, along with aquatic vegetation and various types of algae. Again, for reference, autotrophs are often defined as organisms that produce complex organic compounds using carbon from simple substances like CO2 and using energy from light, you know, photosynthesis, or organic chemical sources or reactions. Hmm. Examples would be the phytoplankton. Now, I was under the impression that phytoplankton was rather scarce in blackwater habitats. However, this indicates to scientists uh, that phytoplankton in blackwater trophic food webs might be more important than originally thought. Interesting stuff. But let's get back to algae and macrophytes. We talked about those the other day, I believe. Most of these life forms enter in our food webs in the region in the form of, wait for it, detritus. Yes, both fine and coarse particulate organic matter are the main source of these materials. I suspect, or I suppose actually, that this explains why heavy accumulations of detritus and algal growth in aquaria go hand in hand, right? Detritus is fuel for life forms of many kinds. In Amazonian blackwater rivers and streams, Studies have determined that the aquatic insect abundance is rather low, with most species concentrated in leaf litter and wood debris, which are important habitats. Yet, here's how a food web looks in some blackwater habitats. 
Studies of blackwater fish assemblage indicated that many fishes feed primarily on burrowing midge larvae, aka chironomids, aka bloodworms, which feed mainly with organic matter derived from terrestrial plants. And of course, the alochthonus inputs, the food from outside of the ecosystem, like fruits, seeds, insects, and plant parts, are important food sources to many fishes. Many midwater kerosens, you know, tetras, consume fruits and seeds of terrestrial plants as well as terrestrial insects. Insects in general are really important to fishes in blackwater ecosystems. In fact, it's been concluded that the first link in the food web during the flooding of the forests is terrestrial arthropods, which provide a highly important primary food for many fishes. These systems are so intimately tied to the surrounding terrestrial environment that it's almost unbelievable. Even the permanent rivers have strong, very predictable seasonality, which provides fruits and seeds and other terrestrial originated food sources for the fishes which reside in them. It's long been known by ecologists that rivers with predictable annual floods have a higher richness of fish species tied to this elevated rate of food produced by the surrounding forests. It makes a lot of sense, right? And of course, fungal growths and bacterial biofilms are extremely valuable as food sources for life forms at many levels, including fishes. The growth of these organisms is powered by, wait for it, decomposing leaf litter. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? So how does a leaf break down? Well, it's a multi-stage process which helps liberate the constituent compounds for use in the overall aquatic ecosystem, and one that's vital to the construction of a food web. The first step in the process is known as leaching, in which nutrients and organic compounds such as sugars, potassium, and amino acids dissolve into the water and move into the soil or as a substrate. The next phase is a form of fragmentation in which various organisms from ranging from termites in the terrestrial forest to aquatic insects and shrimps in the flooded forest physically break down the leaves into smaller pieces. As the leaves become more and more fragmented, they provide more and more surface area for bacteria and fungi to attach and grow upon and more feeding opportunities for our fishes. Okay, okay, this is all very cool and hopefully a bit interesting, but what are the implications for our aquarium, Scott? You're getting a little too esoteric. How can we apply lessons from wild aquatic habitats vis-a-vis -vis food production to our tanks? Well, this is one of the most interesting aspects of a botanical method aquarium. We have the opportunity to create an aquatic microcosm which provides not only unique aesthetics, it provides nutrient processing and to some degree, a self-generating population of creatures with nutritional value for our fishes on a more or less continuous basis. Incorporating botanical materials in our aquariums for the purpose of creating the foundation for biological activity is the starting point. Leaves, seed pods, twigs, and the like are not only just attachment points for bacterial biofilms and fungal growths to colonize, they're physical locations for the sequestration of the resulting detritus, which serves as a food source for many organisms, including our fishes. Think about it this way. Every botanical, every leaf, every piece of wood, every substrate material that we utilize in our aquariums is a potential component of food production. The initial setup of your botanical method aquarium will rather easily accomplish the task of facilitating the growth of said biofilms and fungal growth. This isn't all that much, there isn't really all that much actually that we have to do as aquarists to facilitate this, but to simply add these materials to our tanks, add water, and the appearance of these organisms is going to happen. You could add pure cultures of organisms like paramecium, daphnia, species of acopopods, you know, like cyclops, to, to help jumpstart the process and to add to that next trophic level to your little burgeoning food web. In a perfect world, 
you'd allow the tank to run in for a few weeks or even months if you can handle it before adding your fishes to really let these organisms establish themselves. I did that in project 18. And regardless of how you allow the biome of your tank to establish itself, you don't have to go crazy editing the process by fanatically removing every trace of detritus or fragmented botanicals. You just should. Project 18 was a tank which really pushed this idea to the forefront of my daily practice. Everything from the selection of the materials to the way the tank was set up to the so-called aquascape was imagined as a sort of whole. Yeah, I just said the A word, aquascape. Let's think about the aquascape part more deeply for just a second because a lot of people enjoy that. I get it. But what is the purpose of an aquascape in the aquarium besides aesthetics? Well, it's to provide fishes with a comfortable environment that makes them feel at home, right? Exactly. So when was the last time you really looked into where your fishes live, or should I say how they live, in the habitats from which they come? The information that you can gain from such observations and research is really amazing. One of the key takeaways that you can make is that many freshwater fishes like structure in their habitats. Unless you're talking about large ocean-going fishes or open water lake fishes or fishes that live in enormous schools like you know, herring or smelt or whatever, fishes like a certain type of structure, be it rocks, wood, roots, or whatever. Structure provides a lot of things, namely protection, but also shade, food, and spawning and nesting areas. And of course, the structure that we're talking about in our aquariums is not just rocks and wood. It's all sorts of botanical materials and leaves that create microhabitats in all sorts of places within the aquarium. We can utilize all of these things to facilitate more natural behaviors from our fishes. So yeah, think about how fishes act in nature. They tend to be attracted to areas where supply, food supplies, of course, are relatively abundant, requiring little expenditure of energy in order to satisfy their nutritional needs. Insects, crustaceans, and yeah, other tiny fishes tend to congregate and live around floating plants, masses of algae, fallen tree trunks, and seed pods, leaves, all that stuff. So it's only natural that our subject fishes would be attracted to these areas. I mean, who wouldn't want to have easy access to the buffet line, right? And with the ability to provide live food, such as small insects, I'm thinking about wingless fruit flies and ants again, which I talked about the other day, and to potentially cultivate, cultivate some worms, like bloodworms or whatever, in situ, there are lots of compelling possibilities for creating really comfortable, natural pairing and functioning biotope or biotype aquariums for fishes. Ever the philosopher or muser of the art of aquaristics, I sometimes fear that the burgeoning interest will result in that same sort of diorama effect that we've seen for a while. I mentioned that at the beginning of this podcast, and it just keeps going into my head. I certainly hope that we look at things a little more deeply. I mean, I know it's probably, you know, uh, unfounded, but it seems like the, the nature aquarium movement, and I'm not bashing it, I'm just saying that the, the artistic side of the movement seems to have completely overlooked the real function of nature, which is exactly what Amano was talking about in the beginning. So there's some precedent, unfortunately, and I hope that the biotopers who have a lot of awareness about the habitats they're inspired by will at least consider the functional aesthetic dynamic that we obsess over when they conceive and create their work. It should go beyond merely creating the look of these systems to win a contest. Rather, we should focus on the structural, functional aspects of these environments to create long-term benefits for the fishes that we keep in them. That's a real biotope aquarium in my book. Leaves, detritus submerged terrestrial plants, they all have their place in an aquarium designed to mimic unique natural habitats. You can and should be able to manage nutrients and bioload input released into our closed systems by the materials as we've discussed and demonstrated for years. 
The fear about detritus and about crashing tanks is largely overstated in my opinion, especially with competent aquarium husbandry and proper outfitting of a tank with good filtration and other nutrient control and export systems in place. If you're up to the challenge of attempting to replicate the look of some natural habitat, you should be competent enough as an aquarist to be able to responsibly manage the system over the long term as well. Ouch, right? I know. Well, that's the reality. I'm sorry to be so frank. Enough of the shallow mimicry BS that's dominated the aquascaping and contest world for so long, in my opinion. You want to influence and educate people and inspire them? Want to really advance the hobby and the art and science of aquarium keeping? Then execute a tank which can be managed over the long haul. Crack the coat, figure out the technique, look to nature and back engineer it. These things can be done. They've been done for a century now. They just sort of aren't as popular as looking at flashy pictures. There's many aspects of wild aquatic habitats that we choose to replicate, which we can turn into functionally aesthetic aquarium systems. Let's not forget the, the, the trees themselves in their submerged and even fallen state. These are more than just hardscape to those of us who are from, uh, into the functional aesthetic aspects of our aquariums. There's a lot going on there, a lot to take away and a lot to learn from. We're almost there. In fact, many of us are there and many more are, are sort of arriving there every day and it's really gratifying to see. I hope you have your own Project 18, an aquarium which served or serves as an unlock for the future of your botanical method aquarium work. I hope that you find your unique way in the hobby and I hope you enjoy every second of it. Stay bold, stay creative, stay observant, stay thoughtful, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Feldman from Tenant Aquatics. Thanks for spending part of your day with me. I look forward to seeing you on the next installment of The Tenant.